Turn this morning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We've read a couple of different passages from Romans 8 already this morning. We're going to be reading Romans 8, 10 through 25. Part of the reason that we've already read a couple of passages from Romans is because Romans uh, explains Christ's death and resurrection. Romans is a great big long theological letter to the church in Rome by the Apostle Paul, many years ago of course, and in it, he, he goes through a lot of different topics. But the point overall that he is trying to accomplish is to explain the good news. Okay? And central to that good news is the fact that Jesus died, but that he didn't stay dead. That he rose again. And that's what Paul turns to over and over again, the, the, con, the conflict between uh, the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh is synonymous with death, and the spirit is synonymous with life. And so we're going to see this in, in our passage here this morning as well. Over and over again, you see death and life laid before you. And <clears throat> so we weren't able this year to have a Good Friday service, but of course, on Good Friday, just a couple of days ago, we celebrate Jesus' death. On Friday, Jesus died. On Sunday, he was raised from the dead. On Friday, our sins were paid for by the death of Christ. On Sunday, our hope was established by his resurrection. And so it's all well and good for Jesus to come and die, but if he hadn't been raised up, where would that leave us? It would leave us hopeless. Yet another dead man does nothing for us. But Christ is alive. He is risen. And so there is great joy in this. On Friday, death. On Sunday, life. This is why we don't, the, 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 the celebration of the Sabbath in the, in the New Testament, as the, as the church began to worship the Lord together weekly, moved from Saturday to Sunday, not from Saturday to Friday. Right? There's great joy in this for the Christian. 
But we are often only vaguely aware of why exactly we should be joyful. Right? It's easy to say, yeah, I know that's good news. Good in the, you know, maybe in a philosophical sense of the word. But good news, if you've ever actually received any good news in your life, is something that makes you happy. It makes you smile when you get good news, right? I mean, there's some dour people who, when they receive good news, have to, they work hard at not smiling, right? But of course, even that, they have to work hard at not smiling when they receive good news. Because our natural instinct, this is something that's given to us by God as part of our our uh, character is that good things are happy. They make us smile. And that's what we should do. We should celebrate. But if we don't know why this is good news, if we don't know exactly what in particular is joyful about this, and that will be hard to do. We won't understand it as good news. And so in our passage this morning, Paul explains the implications of Jesus' resurrection for his people. So pay attention, as we read, to the progressions. You're going to see a lot of progressions from one thing to another, one thing to another. You're going to see from death to life. You're going to see from fear to freedom. You're going to see from slavery to... To adoption. You're going to see uh, from suffering to glorification. You're going to see from groaning to waiting eagerly. You're going to see from futility to hope. All of these are just boom, boom, boom. You're, you're back to back in this passage. And so Paul is explaining to us the good news. Why is this good news? Well, no longer this but this. No longer this but this. And all of the things that are over here are the things that you want, and all of the things that are over here are the things that you don't want. Right? And so what we'll see is not just that Jesus is alive, though that's happy on its own. It's happy that a man who was dead, isn't dead anymore. You, you don't have to know the guy to just smile at that, right? But not only is Jesus alive, but we see here that his resurrection is the basis of our hope for every good promise of God. So please stand for the reading of God's word from Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren... We are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that, is not, that, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the first things that stands out to us in this passage is that death comes before life. Go back to verse 10 and you'll see, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Death comes before life, this is the opposite of the way we normally think, isn't it? I mean, you live and at the end comes death. So life comes before death. But what we see here is that we start out dead. We start out dead spiritually. We're dead men walking. Because of Adam's sin... Because of our own sin, we start out spiritually dead. Similarly, we see in verse 15 the contrast between how we start out. We start out as fearful slaves, but we end up as adopted sons, right? And so once again, the parable of the talents jumps into my mind. You think about the question of what you are. Are you a fearful slave or are you an adopted son? And in the parable of the talents, you see three slaves and two of them turn away from their fear and slavery and they become sons. 
by making use of the uh, talents that God has given them without any fear of what may happen from them giving up those talents and, and using them for the Lord. But the, but the third one, that third slave, turns to the fear of slavery and returns to that, that fearful uh, way of behaving towards God that is wrong and that reveals his lack of sonship, right? Because the son doesn't have any fear to do what the father has told him to do. Does he? Think about the father giving a hammer to his son, right? Here, take this. Go hammer in all those loose nails on the deck. Right? Now think of all the things that could go wrong there. There's an awful lot of things that can go wrong with that, right? You don't have to, you don't have to be super creative and, uh, and a worry wart to come up with things that can go wrong. Yes, the end of the handle could come flying off and it might go flying through the window and land on the baby and, you know, okay, so yeah, you can go down this crazy path, but you don't have to go down the crazy path for it to be that things could go wrong, right? You give a kid a hammer and things can go wrong without looking for, for him to go wrong. He may slam his thumb and you may end up at the emergency room anyway. Right? Or he may go by he may go around trying to bang on all the nails, but with out the skill that's that's truly a learned skill that's necessary for using a hammer correctly, you're gonna end up not with nails going into the deck, but with a bunch of bent heads of nails stuck and dense all over the place in your deck. Right? But does the son have any fear going out with the hammer? No, the son delights to go and do, to, to do his best, to attempt to do what his dad told him to do, without any fear. And he, he, he may have some idea that things could go wrong. Right? but he delights to do the will of his father. It's not exactly the same thing when you, when you hire somebody to come and repair your deck, is it? They are the slave. Fearful that they do something wrong and you're going to sue them or you're going to make them replace the whole deck or whatever. So which comes first? Death comes first. That fearful slavery comes first in our passage, okay? 
And we're rescued from that and brought to the sonship. This is why it's adoption, not natural birth. That's why the fear comes first. Do you see this? But there's another sense in which death comes first that you see Paul making reference to here. Not just in what we are naturally first, dead in our transgressions and our sins, but in a way that Jesus speaks of and Paul speaks of elsewhere, meaning that unless we give up our lives, we will lose them. In that giving up of our lives, Jesus speaks of in John 12, 24, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So this is another sense in which death comes prior to life, right? You plant the seed, you bury it in the ground, it's not just a symbol of death, that seed is gone when you're done. It doesn't stay a seed, it dies, there's no more seed there, and instead it comes to life as a tree bearing fruit. It's so much better in the end. You get life after death. And when some were arguing, claiming that there was going to be no physical resurrection, no resurrection of the body, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul takes them to the woodshed, and uh, in verse 36, he says to them, You fool! That which you sow, plant, right? That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And so in the same way, we see Christ's death leads to our life. His death comes prior to our life. If he would not give himself up to death, we would not be able to have life, would we? And similarly with ourselves, we are called to follow him in this, giving ourselves up so that we may produce fruit for him. And so we die to ourselves, and the result is life in his name. This is yet another way that death precedes life. It's exactly the opposite of the way we normally think. We think that if we give ourselves up, that it leads to death, and that death leads to nothing. Right? But in point of fact, we have the 
not just the promise of God that if we die to ourselves, if we die to our sin, that there will be tremendous fruit from him. We have the demonstration of that fact in Jesus Christ's death leading to his life in his resurrection. Hey, sit down. We see this same concept in verse 17 where it speaks of our suffering coming first and our glory coming later. Just as Christ's suffering precedes his glorification, so our suffering comes prior to our redemption. Therefore, we must join him in leaving behind death. Which means joining him in suffering. Okay? Look at verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And so we're called to believe this this, uh, foolishness to the world. And listen, this foolishness, you've got to get it right. There are a lot of people who reject this foolishness, who claim to be Christians teaching Christian things, and what they end up saying is, oh, well, that's obviously foolish about this very idea of giving up yourself in suffering for his name's sake. So where do you typically see this? Well, oftentimes you see it in self-help, Christian self-help, or non-Christian self-help, you see the same kind of concept in play. Your number one priority has to be yourself, right? Isn't that the the first step of writing a self-help book, is understanding that that has to be at the heart of it? And that's exactly the opposite of what we see in our passage here. And so all the self-help books, all the Christian self-help books, take as their assumption that it's foolishness to do what? To join him in suffering. They take it as, as, a, as a given as a fact that is beyond question, that the first thing you have to do is to be committed to not suffering. To be committed to not giving yourself up on behalf of him 
on behalf of his people. Because what's going to happen if you do that? You're going to get trampled all over. That's what they say, right? You know, if you don't have, if you don't have your self-respect, then, nobody, then, then you're just going to lose, 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 lose. And so you've got to learn to prioritize yourself and make sure you get what you need. And though there may be some seeds of wisdom and truth that come from God in those concepts, they're lies straight from hell. Because what they lead us to believe is that we must not give up our lives because that will not bear fruit. But what we read here is we must give up our lives like Jesus Christ. We must join him in his suffering. And it is only when we are willing to give our lives up that we could have hope that the life, the fruit, would come later. Death comes prior. Death to self. Death to the lusts of the flesh. Death to our own desires. We become like Jesus, joining him as a seed in the ground. And it is then that we see the fruit. And so it is not true that Christ suffered so that we don't have to. It is true that Christ died so we don't have to. Right? But isn't that a, isn't that a, a nice little change to switch it so, to he suffered so that we don't have to? Well, again, you know, you could say that in a way that is, you, you could mean that. You could say that and mean it in a way that it is true. Because what we're losing when, when we give ourselves to Christ is the suffering of eternal torment in a lake of fire. That suffering is gone. We, he suffered so that we don't have to. But that doesn't transfer to the here and now, this idea that, he suffered in this life so that our life could be the best life now. And so Paul brings out our mortal bodies that are dying. And he brings out the, the, the fear that we have. And he brings out our slavery. And he brings out our suffering. And he brings out the anxious longing that we have. And he brings out the futility of life. And the futility of creation. And he brings out our groaning and the groaning of creation. 
But why does he bring all of these things out? Why does he bring them all up in a row like this? Well, he brings them all up in a row so that we can see all of these sad things in contrast to what they will be in Christ. And from the beginning to the end, that hope of those things ending and the, and the joy that we have in Christ, the life that we have in him, the proof of all of that from beginning to end is in his resurrection. We see that in verse 11. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. If he was able to bring Jesus Christ back from the dead, then he is able to redeem you. He is able to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. If he raised Jesus from the dead, then he's able to make your life fruitful in spite of all of the bad things that you've done. Moses, come and sit down and don't move. But all of these promises rest on that word, if. And it's not just if Christ was raised. In fact, it isn't if Christ was raised. This is a historical fact. The if is if his spirit is in you. If the Spirit who did raise Jesus from the dead has raised, that's not the if. If his Spirit is in you. You see it in verse 10. If Christ is in you, the very beginning of our passage. If Christ is in you, verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus is dwelling in you. Verse 13, if you are putting to death the deeds of the body. Verse 17, if we suffer with Christ. You see how he keeps coming back to that. If, if, if. And each time what he reiterates is, then you are receiving the promises. If you have done these things, if his spirit is in you, if you are suffering with him, all of these things are perfect proofs that you will be moved from the category of groaning to the category of hope and joy.
if we suffer with Christ, then his resurrection leads us to hope for life, redemption, adoption, glorification. And not just hope, but verse 25, hope is persevering while we wait eagerly. And so are we eager for these things? Are you eager for your life to be freed from the sins that entangle you? Are you eager to turn away from the spirit of fear and slavery to the spirit of adoption as sons? Are you eager to be glorified? Are you eager to see what this creation becomes when it's remade, not in futility? Then put your hope in Jesus Christ, the one who died and was raised. Let's pray.